providers. I just would like to say brief words of thanksgiving. Uh, I speak for my family. I thank you all for your love uh, demonstrated to us in many different ways. We see many reasons why a relationship between sinners could go wrong. And this one has worked so well. We can't help but see God's hand in it. Thank you. And uh, we thank God for knitting our hearts together with yours this morning with you. So, I'm preaching this morning. Our desire to be faithful to God's word and of our love for all of you. This is God's word. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 6. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my iniquities, my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Let us pray. O oh Lord God, this should be the prayer of every sinner. It should be our prayer. So please lead us to self-examination. But ultimately, lead us to the cross of Jesus, that those who are not saved will come to him for salvation. And those who are already saved but have undermined, undermined the power of sin, underestimated it, will be waken up, will confess their sins, and find forgiveness in you. Please be the one speaking through my mouth. In Jesus' name, amen. Our message this morning concerns the matters of guilt and forgiveness. The first one is universal and typically of men, guilt. It includes all of us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The second one is typically of God, for he alone forgives sinners, and he teaches us to forgive. We have before us a prayer of a true Christian who fell into terrible sins. We know the story of adultery of David and with Bathsheba. It's found in 2 Samuel 11. We see there, 
an occasion of idleness. Uh, David, in a day of idleness and indulgence, he saw Bathsheba bathing, and he wanted to possess her. As a king, he had the power, so he had her brought to the palace, and he committed adultery to hide his sin. He killed an innocent man, Uriah. This is the, the occasion of this confession. David was a God-fearing man. He was a Christian. He wrote many of the Psalms. But, brothers and sisters, there is no man so spiritual, no woman so spiritual, that they cannot fall into terrible sins. It is not without reason that the Bible tells us, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he falls. Psalm 51, among other things, teaches us about the right way to deal with the reality of guilt. If guilt is universal, how do we deal with it? Well, we can choose either to be our own judge, and that's not going to eliminate the guilt. It will just lead you to deceive yourself. Perhaps it will lead you to remorse. But the guilt remains. Or you can voice it to God in confession. Plead, plead for mercy. And then you can find pardon. You may say, as Christians, we, we know these basic truths already. We know just well. Well, we do know in our heads, but sometimes we forget it in our practice. Did David not know these basic truths? That David did not know about sin and grace. He surely did. Nevertheless, after his sin of adultery, it took about a year before true repentance came to him. David was probably still going to church, praying, reading his Bible, ignoring this black mark in his heart. It was only when he heard the word of God through the mouth of Nathan that his eyes were open. It was when Nathan told that parable to him about a wicked man who is stolen the sheep of a poor other man. It was when he heard those words that his eyes were opened. He condemned that man. He said, he deserves to die. And then... The word of God says, you are the man. Happy is the man who hears God's word saying, you are the man. You are the woman. Only the spirit of God can open the eyes of the dormant sinner. And that he does through his word. So listen to the word of God, please. It is not, this word is not for your neighbor. It's not for your spouse. You are the man. You are the woman. We have before us a story of a man who tried to tackle guilt his own way. A man who sinned grievously against the Lord. 
and still expected life to go in harmony. But this text shows us that no schemes that we devise will eliminate guilt. There's only one way to do that. Only one way to have sins washed away. It is to appeal for God's mercy. This psalm is a call to repentance. To non-Christians, yes, but I would say more specifically to Christians. David is a Christian. And though these perhaps sound like baby steps, they are so frequently overlooked. So we would divide our message this morning in three points. First, the depths of sin. Second, a huge chasm, huge abyss. And third, the height of God's grace. The depths of sin, a huge chasm, and the heights of God's grace. The first point, the depths of sin. You can only see your desperate need of God's grace when you consider the depths of your sin. As one commentator says, he who never sorrowed for sin will never rejoice for grace. The light of God's word shows the sinner the depths of his sin. A crucial thing that we learn from David on how to deal with guilt first is to own it. It is our guilt. No one else is to blame. David does, is, does this in, in two ways. First, he calls sin, sin. And he also said, it is mine. He doesn't say that with pride. He comes with a contrite heart, with a, with a broken spirit. But he says, it's my sin. I know my sin. It is very common for us to call sin something else. Our society has developed the ability to call sin something else. We may say, it's an illness. It is, I have a compulsion. A compulsion to lie, perhaps. I can't help it. I'm a a victim of my compulsion. Or if we frequently offend others by being blunt, We say, you know, it's just my personality. It is who I am. I just say whatever comes to my mind. I'm not to blame. Well, the book of Proverbs says that carelessness in speech is sin. It says it repeatedly. David once called his sin something else. He deceived himself. When his plan succeeded to kill Uriah, he said to Job, do not worry, do not not be troubled by this. It was the war. The war did this. I'm innocent. Now, after God's word is expounded before him, he calls sin by what it is. He, He uses three words. He uses transgression in verse 1. He uses sin and he uses iniquity. Iniquity. So the first word that he uses is transgression in verse 1. That means to cross the boundary. 
to rake a rule. When you drive on a road on 70 miles per hour, knowing that the speed limit is 30 miles per hour, you know you crossed the limit, you broke a rule, and you can be punished. Whose rules did David break? He broke God's laws. The second word that he uses is iniquity in verse 2. That means perversion, corruption. That's not something else. Sin is perversion. It is corruption. The third word he uses is sin in verses 2, in verses 3 as well. This means to miss the mark, to fall short of something. David knew that he was not he was not at that moment the man that God wanted him to be. Have you transgressed God's laws? Think of the Ten Commandments before you answer that. Are you corrupt? The Bible says that we are, we are all corrupt. Have you missed the mark that God set before you? A mark of holiness. Well, Romans 2.3 declares that all of us come short of that. Have you been given your sin or the names? Have you excused yourself? Have you been deceiving yourself? Because if you call sin something else, if you deceive yourself, it will not eliminate your guilt. Those who deal with sin lightly will experience the weight of God's judging hand. David knew he broke more than one of God's commandments. He uses the word transgression in verse 1, in plural. It's not one transgression, it's transgressions. But not only that, as he continues to examine himself, he's led to see the depths of sin in his life. He acknowledged that sin is staying The sting of sin goes as deep as his heart, the core of his being. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin that my mother conceived me. He's not saying that intercourse within a marriage is sinful. He's not blaming his mother. And that we know because he said, I know my sin. You're mine. Verse 3 is speaking about something that is much denied in our day. Original sin. He's saying that he knows that he is a son of Adam, and as such, there's no part, there's no part of him that has not been affected by sin. As he, as he reflects on his sins of murder and adultery, he's led to see that his whole nature is corrupt. The problem of David is not only that he sinned, but that he is a sinner. Your problem is not only that you sin. Your problem is that you are a sinner. Your bad behavior is only the tip of the iceberg. Go deeper. 
and you will see your corruption lies in your very nature. You and I are corrupt from the sole of our foot to the top of our head as one covered by leprosy. We are unclean, and our uncleanness is sin. From the earliest moment of our existence, we are sinners. David, who spent much time in self-delusion, now he starts seeing things straight. He sees that he sinned first and foremost before God. Sin, first and foremost, is an offense to God. He knows that before offending Bathsheba or Uriah, he offended their maker, who is also his maker, God. He says, against you, you only, have I sinned. He's not minimizing the evil done to Uriah or anyone else. But God is the lawgiver. God is the lawgiver. He created everything for his glory. When we sin, we always offend God more than anyone else. See what God said about David's transgression in 2 Samuel 12.9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife. Or listen to Proverbs 14. 31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. Or even Proverbs 17, 5, in similar way, similar way says, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. It is bad to murder a person. It is a horrendous thing. But by murdering someone, we offend more than an individual more than society. We offend God, who made man after his own image. Sin must be seen first from God's perspective before it becomes an ethical and moral problem, social or psychological problem. It is theological. Sin is first a theological problem because... To sin is to do what is evil in the eyes of God. Children, when you disobey your parents, the worst thing about it is not that you can be caught and punished. It is not even that you can make your parents angry or disappointed, though that is also bad. The problem is that disobeying your parents is evil in the sight of the Lord. Sin disturbs our relationship with God, though we cannot lose salvation. Our iniquity wound our consciences. It causes us to lose the joy of our salvation. Indulgence to sin shuts the mouth of those who once sung 
joyful songs of praises to God. Sin, brothers and sisters, great or small, open hell before us. Without God's help, we'll be swallowed up. As David, we need to have a real sense of sin. One commentator says that repentance is not a dead knowledge of sin committed, but a living, sensitive consciousness of it. David's need is urgent. We notice that in his first words, have mercy. The dread of David comes from realizing how much his sinful nature is contrary to God. This leads us to our second point, a huge chasm, a huge abyss, a gap. David knows that God has the right to condemn him. If you read verse 4, he says that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. One theologian says that when we see sin as sin, we cannot help but say amen to God's judgment against it. Amen. A person illuminated by the Holy Spirit to see the depths he has plunged himself into cannot help but say, I have sinned, Lord. I deserve, if you sent me to hell right now, you would be right. But please do not, do not give me what I deserve. Verses 5 and 6 form a parallel that show a contrast, very clearly this contrast between sinner's nature and God's nature. Notice verse 5 and verse 6 start with the same word, behold. The first behold describes, describes man, and the second one describes God. Just as a parallel, he says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin that my mother conceived me. This is man, sinful from the beginning, sinful from the core of his being. The second behold tells us about God, but you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret of the heart. These verses make very clear the impossibility of sinful men to live up to God's holy standards. God is the God of truth. He is the God of wisdom. And he requires truth and wisdom. He created us perfect. But the thing is that these two qualities are no part of our sinful nature. God will not lower his standards because of man's rebellion. He, will, he cannot be less holy. Holy is his essence. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is near to those who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Now, answer to yourself, how can we, they are so prone to lie, even to ourselves. We would lie to God if we could. 
How can we call upon his name in truth? Jesus says, God is spirit, and we must worship him in his spirit and truth. Do you see your problem? Those characteristics that God requires of men are not only external actions, but he requires truth within. And that's exactly what we do not have. We do not have. What a gap. What a gap. You may say, I have not sinned like David did. I never murdered. But God requires heart fidelity, inner perfection, holiness. Is this natural to you? Do you have this in and of yourself? Have you really never murdered? Well, you can, maybe you, you did not do as David did. You, you did not go as far as he goes. But look at the words of Jesus in Matthew 5.21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool! will be liable to hell fire. And about adultery, the Lord Jesus teaches us that when we look at other with lust, we have already committed it in our hearts. We have the same tendency of the Pharisees. The Pharisees interpreted the law of God very narrowly. Therefore, they thought they practiced it Perfectly. But what does the Lord Jesus say to his disciples? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There is an abyss, a chasm between sinners and the holy God. What David experienced was not only an intellectual understanding of total depravity. What he has is a real sense of sin, and we need that as well. But thank God, this psalm does not only speak about the depths of sin, but also about the heights, the abundance of God's mercy. And this is our third and last point, the height of God's Grace, since God cannot lower his standards, our only hope is that he's going to lift us up, that he's going to improve our nature, that he himself is going to make us holy. Verse 6 says, You teach me wisdom in the secret of the heart. In the secret heart. Restoration must come from God. The only way for me to get wisdom, to be wise unto salvation, is that God teaches me that in the secret of 
the heart. Only then I will have the wisdom that he requires. Only then I'll be able to see the heinousness of my iniquities. I am bankrupt. My only hope is God alone. David has a contrite heart, but his plea is not on basis of that. Contrition is necessary, but it's not a way to earn anything from God. It must be something on his own character that moves him to favor to a hell-worthy sinners. The first words of David are not even words of confession. They are words of plea. Have mercy. Before confessing, he asks for that. That is the whole basis of this prayer. The only hope of humanity is that God is not only a righteous judge, he is a merciful judge. His forgiving mercy is manifest in the person of his son, Jesus. Jesus is the personification of mercy. He was merciful. He was moved with compassion when he saw the multitude hungry. When they were hungry, he was willing to give them bread. He provided bread for them. But he was never as moved as to see sinners in their fallenness. When he came to Jerusalem and he contemplated the loss of those sinners, as we are as well, he cried. His compassion, Jesus' compassion, moved him to the cross to save sinners. Do you want to know how much God despises sin? Look at Calvary. A symbol of humiliation, shame, punishment. There he crushed Jesus because of sin. Do you know the heights? Do you want to know the heights of God's mercy? His abundant mercy. Look at Calvary again. Look at the cross. Because there... Jesus died, not for his sins, because he never sinned. He died for sinners. He died in our place. And there, he opened an abundant fountain of mercy. This mercy that David prays for is the mercy found in the Lord Jesus. In the Lord Jesus. David makes very interesting words. He, he uses very interesting words here in this prayer. In verse 1, he uses the word mercy. It is, to, it is to show favor. It is to be gracious. It is to be inclined towards someone with favor. The second word he uses is steadfast love. That is a covenant word. It refers to a special kindness that implies a relationship. This favor that he begs for is for those who have entered in a relationship with God through Jesus. You know, Jesus is the bridge 
to the gap between God and us. He's the bridge to this big chasm. He is this bridge. He improves your nature, my nature, and makes us holy and acceptable to God. This is what Jesus does. A third word used is translated as abundant mercy. It is the same word that in Hebrew is used for bowels. Used sometimes to refer to where babies come from. It suggests the affection of a mother towards her baby. David is asking that God will pity him as a mother pities her little one. And this should be a plea as well. Should be your plea and my plea. David spells out the way that he expects God to show mercy to him. It is by washing him. Wash me. Wash me thoroughly. Or more literally, multiply wash. It was not, it is not that it is difficult for God to wash those vile sins of David, but it, it is his sense that sin is ingrained in us. And we need, we need to be sure that it's being cleansed. Cleanse me from my spiritual leprosy. Cleanse me from my sin. The scripture teaches us that God washes sinners through the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus. Can you see, can you see the depths of your sin? Then look at the heights to the abundance of God's mercy. Your self-examination should never end in yourself. Self-examination that does not lead you to the cross leads you to despair. Leads you to remorse. But it does not lead you to be pardoned. Every time you examine yourself, do not spend too much time there. Look at Jesus Christ. Look at Jesus Christ. As you partake the Lord's Supper this morning, be reminded of that, what Jesus did for us. His blood was shed for real. His body was, was given for us for real so that we might be saved. He opened this fountain of abundant mercy. In Jesus, we have mercy upon mercy. In Jesus, we have grace upon grace. David also uses the word blot out, my iniquity, blot out. This is an expression that alludes to a book of debt. When the debt was blotted out, it was eliminated. Think of this. Besides original sin, every action of us is recorded in God's book. But what Jesus does on the cross is exactly to blot out our debts with his blood. The pen, the ink, is his own blood. Your debt may pile up. It stretches to, to eternity. But God's mercy is more. 
God's mercy in Jesus is certainly more abundant than your sin. Amen. If we, like David, cry out, Have mercy on me, O God. Or perhaps like the publican in the New Testament, we will find this favor. We all need confession because we all have things to repent of. We need repentance of taking sin too lightly. Repentance of abusing God's mercy. Of doubting the sufficiency of Christ to blot out our sins. Repentance of blame shift as Adam. Sometimes we just do the same. We blame God for our own faults. We need repentance from denying sin, from making excuses instead of confessing. We need repentance because we are the ones who pierced Christ on the cross. You are the man. You are the woman. It was my sin. It was your sin. But if you believe in Jesus, it's been washed away. No debt is left. Those who plead for God's steadfast love will find an abundant fountain of mercy. That we find in Jesus. You can cast yourself before the cross of Jesus. The personification of mercy. If you do that, your iniquities, your debts, will be blotted out of God's book. In the moment that we are united with Christ by faith, our debt is canceled. It's, it, it's thrown into the bottom of the sea, never to be found again. As believers, we need, sometimes we have our assurance shaken by our carelessness, as David did, because we indulge ourselves in sin. Because instead of confessing sin, we deal with it in our own terms. True confession creates an opportunity for reassurance. David needed to be reassured. And you know, when David confessed his sin before Nathan, he confessed it to God before Nathan. What were the words? What, what were the words of God right away? Your sin is taken away. But David was still shaken. He was still afraid. Sometimes, sometimes we confess our sins from the heart, but we are still shaken and wounded because of what we have done. But we need to be reminded that forgiveness, as long as we confess our sins, genuinely, depending on God's mercy, repentance brings this forgiveness. This forgiveness is promised. God said that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is an objective fact, an objective reality, no matter how you feel. 
So cast yourself before God this way, trusting only in his mercy.